So we've got time for a few questions, if anybody has any. I feel like I've designed that purple brace you use in my, in my own more painful meditations a couple times. And I'm just wondering if it's something of your own design or if it's something that's available. It's available. I did not design it. I saw somebody else using it, just as you did. It's called Not a Chair, N-A-D-A. <laughs> it's a takeoff on Not a Chair. And I actually uh, discovered it for sitting on the ground watching my kids' soccer games when they were little because it gives a brace to your back and you can clip the knees and it's just really stable. And then when I started developing back problems, I started using it for meditation, both sitting on a cushion and moving away from the the back of a chair. Mm. So you can, you can Google it or... Um, I actually got mine before the internet, so you then you call the number in the phone book, an 800 number, and some woman answered and sent them out from her house. I'm sure it's gotten to be a much bigger business now. Awesome. Thank you. My second question, is it possible to, um, I mean, we were talking about rerouting neural pathways, and you're talking about it in terms of rerouting them from a positive, from a joy aspect. Could you also use that with a difficult person like could you use it to i don't know on the first breath like sort of drink them in and feel the aversion and then as you go through the 10 breaths could you use it to you know on the second breath find something nice about their face on the third you know (laughs) well of course that's experimenting you know that's like applying the practice in the real world and that's a very creative way to apply it i often think of it as sort of a, a helpful gratitude practice and i often think of what you're talking about is sort of a pausing and refraining practice that I might use three breaths with because whoever I'm interacting with might wonder why I'm taking ten, you know, ten breaths. Um, so, you know, the, the practice is very mobile and it's like a toolkit and you can pull different things out when, when you need it. And so, yeah, that's fantastic. I think that's a wonderful way of dealing with aversive people. I'm going to remember that one. Thanks. I, I was actually using sort of flashing faces of my sangha. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't one person. It was just sort of like, oh, and them. Yeah. Oh, oh, and them. You know, it was really... It was <laughs> well, and that's sort of a bridge with the meta practice yeah. that La taught with a challenging person yesterday, too, that might be really... I mean, it's just great. Oh, he know. was in there. I, I brought him in. I let him in. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I've been thinking a lot about uh, what you said yesterday about um, watering the seeds of joy, how I've been trying to cultivate that in my life for a little while now, and how hard it is (laughs) to really follow through on the things that I'm passionate about or interest me, and just for me, for no one else. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you could speak to the discipline kind of in a bigger way. I know that there's there's small things that we can do like the breath throughout the day and they do connect to then these bigger things like signing up for um, sailing like Mm -hmm. you did. (laughs) But I find that like following through on like the sailing activities and like those sort of things are really um, sometimes difficult. And if you could just speak to that. Sure. 
Well, this is where right effort in the practice comes in. And so right effort is both about extending effort as well as non-effort, um, really finding that balance. So uh, if we're too tight and we tend to be somebody who's going to start achieving right away, which was me, right? I talked about that last night. And, you know, I'm going to sit for 45 minutes if you have to carry me out of here. I don't, I'm waiting for that bell to ring. Um, that's the end of the continuum where it might be really helpful to say, oh, wow. I do my life this way. How could I bring compassion and kindness to this moment? Oh, and so not feeling like it's a, a failure, but to actually love myself enough to shift my posture or move to a chair. So if we're too tight, we have to learn how to loosen it up. And not from a place of a deficit, but from a place of love, care, and compassion from our place. And then if we're too lax... We have to find a way to tighten it up. So if we're too lax, maybe I'm sitting in in meditation and I have this fantasy, and I know I have this fantasy, but I'm just going to go with it, man, to make the eternal time of this meditation go. And besides, who's going to know, right? You know? So that might be a time to tighten it up a little bit, but... In terms of daily life, and this I found to be really, really hard, because if you wait till you feel like doing things, you won't, right? You won't. And I'll tell you, the only way, and again, this is why where you have to hold two worlds at once in some ways, because it sounds paradoxical. But the only way I've found to take care of that is to consciously plan. And so even when I was working a straight six on, three off shift, um, I would plan to get together with good friends. I'd get it in the calendar. You know, I would get a class in the calendar that I wanted to take. And now that I have more space than I'm self-employed and I can set my schedule up any way I want, I usually, I mean, I have my 2015 schedule and I'm putting things in that that I want to do. The things that I really want to do for 2014 were put in there in 2013 and then everything's planned around that. Now things come up and it doesn't always work out, but, you know, it's so important to engage in the activities that water the seeds of joy. That's as much a part of our practice as anything else. So what are those Zen activities for you? What are those activities where you're just absorbed in the moment for the moment and consciously plan them? So last night in your session, Sherry, you were talking about how burnout is when you, you're giving more than you have to give. Mm -hmm. And I've been pondering that um, since last night, both with respect to relationship with my mother, as well as my work. And I work on um, women's rights in a hierarchical, bureaucratic organization that there's tension there. And I'm just wondering, <laughs> so then I was pondering today, like, what if what you have, so what do I have to offer? Mm -hmm. um, rather than what do I not have to offer, what do I have to offer? And I identified things that there is a tension between what I have to offer and what people are ready to receive. So how do you 
approach that? And how do you deal with that in social justice work and in relationships? Well, what you learn to do is your advantage is always that you know the language of the arena you're in. So I've never talked about meditation and mindfulness much when I'm working with criminal justice professionals. Um, but I know how to translate their language. And I know the language of this practice, so I try to put the language of this practice into here. So, uh, you know, for example, I did a training early on when I started to realize that, uh, my gosh, we're really good at training officers in the f how to in the physical tools to do their jobs in terms of keeping themselves and other people safe, but we're losing people emotionally, not physically. So how can I help train them? And I'm not talking about basic sort of health and wellness, sleep more, eat better, da 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 but how can I train them to um, keep themselves emotionally safe? And what I did is I looked at my career, and I looked at sort of the biological effects of the career and the the hypervigilance required and uh, started, uh, did an in-service on the emotional effects of, of that job on us over time. And they loved it so much that they started asking if they could bring their spouses and some of the retired people showed up because they really wanted to understand what had happened to them over time and they realized that they were feeling depressed and listless and that I would never talk about secondary traumatic stress I would translate the language into, hey, these incidents can really have an impact on us. Um, I talked about the biological roller coaster that uh, can happen. So I really used myself as an imprint. And I didn't, I didn't really, I thought about the kind of workplace that I wanted to live in and how I could be, I mean, I don't want to sound trite about it, but as Gandhi said, be the change I'm looking to create. So I got my team together and I said, hey, I know that it's the politics of the workplace that really impact people more than anything else. I mean, this is like being back in high school, but all of us have guns for crying out loud, you know? <laughs> like, that's a, that's a scary thought. Um, so what if, you know, so I was thinking about the element of the Noble Eightfold Path and the, the precept around right speech. And I didn't say we need to use right speech and stop speaking in a less adversarial manner, but I said, what if we made an agreement that if we had a complaint about somebody else, that we were going to bring it to the group or bring it to the person who could actually do something about it and not go and sit behind closed doors and try to recruit each other to our viewpoints? But I'm only, we can only do this if we all agree to it. So if we don't all agree to it, and if we're not all willing to police it with ourselves and each other, let's not agree to it. So I just put it out there. They loved it. You know, I'm talking about cops. If I can do it with cops, you can do it with whatever arena that, that you're in. So I just started thinking about, and you know, this is a, I'm trying to, I've got two books in mind. Um, one is sort of my memoirs and the lessons that they kind of taught me, little police vignettes. And the other one is how do we bring the Eightfold Path into organizational life? How do we do this? So look for the book. <laughs> but I mean, I really started looking at the entire Noble Eightfold Path and how I applied this to my life in organizations. 
but in a way, you know, that I will, you know, in a way that I think anybody could understand. Right livelihood, you know, for example. Why do we think that bigger is better? Why do we never question that in nonprofits in a way that leads to these caseloads for people that lead to burnout in such a ridiculous way? There's so many ways that we step into the zone of fire that we do have control over. So that's just an inkling. But don't, don't try to change other people. Just be who you want to be. And I guarantee you other people will start responding and they'll get very curious. 